Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Queering the World, the art of Barbara Hammer. Our music throughout is off of Alex Dobkin's Living with Lavender Jane, a compilation of her first two albums, Lavender Jane Loves Women and Living with Lesbians. This is Lesbian Power Authority. Barbara Hammer has been making films for over 40 years, but it's highly unlikely that you've ever seen them and are now asking, who is Barbara Hammer? I'm a, a woman's lover. I'm another woman's mom. I'm a woman's daughter, naturally. And if ever... As a queer filmmaker, I embrace all kinds of sexuality in my films. That grows as people respond more and more to all kinds of possibilities. Like we talk about lesbian, gay, transsexual. We talk about uh, heterosexual. We talk about um, multiple partners. There's still more to uncover in terms of our sexuality and it's all queer. We are queering the world. There's no place I'd rather be than surrounded by lesbians. A scenery to renew my identity with a lesbian, a power authority. Born in 1939 in Hollywood, California, a kind of cosmic irony, Barbara Hammer is an American feminist filmmaker known for being one of the pioneers of lesbian film. Hammer's known for creating experimental films that we might describe in a staid way as dealing with women's issues such as gender roles, lesbian relationships, and coping with aging and family. But we also might be very specific. They're about menstruation, multiple orgasm, and masturbation, about loving and being loved, about knowing and respecting the truths of the body, about living and dying, about the lies we tell ourselves in history, art, science, and our very social organization. In short, Barbara Hammer makes films to queer the world. Bloomington, Indiana is hosting a film series called Barbara Hammer, Boundless, and it explores five decades of Hammer's work, highlighting themes of desire, feminist community, health and wellness, historical and archival research, and self-representation a pioneering filmography of queer experimentation. Featuring newly restored prints from the Academy Film Archive, this program pays homage to a female filmmaker who has had a profound impact on queer filmmaking and art history. It begins tomorrow, January 16th, and runs through Friday, tracking Hammer's work chronologically from the beginning, 1968 to 1978, the middle, 1981 to 1990, and the never-ending which shows two of her more recent films, including Evidentiary Bodies, which confronts Hammer's living with ovarian cancer. The screening takes place in the IU Library's Moving Image Archive Screening Room in the Herman B. Wells Library. We're joined today by Carmel Curtis and Joan Hawkins, who are the curators of Barbara Hammer, Boundless. And now, Queering the World on Interchange on WFHB. I'm Joan Hawkins. I'm an associate professor of cinema and media studies in the media school at IU. Hi, uh, my name is Carmel Curtis. Um, I'm 
working as an audiovisual archivist. I work specifically, my title is Film Digitization Specialist. I work in the Moving Image Archive of the Indiana University Library. Now, we're here today to talk about Barbara Hammer, the films of Barbara Hammer. Who is Barbara Hammer? Barbara is uh, someone who's difficult to describe succinctly. Uh, Born in 1939, she's been making film and art for over half a century. Um, she is often credited as being the first openly lesbian ex- filmmaker. Um, not necessarily the first lesbian filmmaker, but uh, the first openly lesbian filmmaker in America, at least. She's often cited. Um, she, her, her film and art is multifaceted, multi-textured, um, avant-garde, experimental, queer, documentary. Um, she really experiment to manipulate the medium of film and the way that film can interact in spaces. So not only will she put together a piece where where she'll uh, edit or where she'll cut through the celluloid film, but she'll do a piece where she will take the, the projector and move it around the space. So she's manipulating both the medium of film and the way that audiences interact with film. Hmm. She also does uh, interesting interventions in narrative, I think. She's uh, when you said that she works with history, she works both with film history and with history writ large. So she had a film called Sanctus, which was about the very freaky early experiments that were done where predominantly male filmmakers would use X-ray imagery of their wives and girlfriends and to... Um, well, to demonstrate various things, but you would see like an X-ray skeleton putting on lipstick or an X-ray skeleton drinking a glass of milk, for mm. example. And so she recut those films and um, tr- and treated them and did them in, di- in, in a different way to make them. It makes it a very beautiful abstract film, but you also keep coming back to the fact that these men were using X-ray images of their wives and girlfriends, many of whom got cancer later in their years for you know being good partners. Mm -hmm. Um, She did a wonderful film called Resisting Paradise, which is about the resistance in World War II. And it starts out like this very kind of clunky art film, where I think it's Cezanne and Renoir are are writing back and forth about their, um, or Manet, are writing back and forth about their uh, experiments with light and color. And somewhere in the middle of this, you find out that it's, it's Manet, right? Madame Manet is in jail for having been participating in the French resistance. Mm. And um, these guys are just talking about how to get a really vibrant shade of red. In the spring of 1999, I went to southern France, to Cassis, a fishing village near Marseille that is known for its light and beauty. I wanted to film the light, the light that had enticed painters to leave Paris for the shimmering place. Van Gogh, Duran, Matisse, Bonnard, and many others chose to live and work near the sea in Provence and Côte d'Azur. Notre Dieu est la lumière. Our God is light. Un jour viendra où tu comprends. A day will come when you will understand what that means. Let it be felt that the painter was there, seeing things in their own light. That southern light, 
during certain hours, which over great spaces becomes the principal subject of the sensitive artist. An artist sensible. Cassie was beautiful. This was paradise. A love of pleasure brought us all here. Or did it? And then it ends with uh, the suicide death of Walter Benjamin. So it's this really, it's not, it is not a film that's, um, that partakes necessarily in, in, Reestablishing a history of queer sexuality, but it certainly is a queering of history mm -hmm. in a way of making you look at things, these heroic tales that we like to tell ourselves, right. and taking a look at them, looking at them otherwise. Mm. Well, that's fascinating already. Is she a product of the 50s and 60s, uh, at least in the beginning? She has to sort of come out of that 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 beginning space, which is very much. Um, in that Betty for Dan space, or is, does it have anything to do with it? Barbara was born in Hollywood, California, actually, um, in 1939. So she was around this uh, traditional American culture that I would imagine would be difficult to escape for um, someone who's white and in the large, in the middle class. Um, her films were never Hollywood at, at and we're never anywhere close. Right. Um, she started as an art student, um, not making films necessarily, but painting. Um, that was uh, painting and drawing and photography were some of her first mediums. Uh, and she'll tell a story how she in school um, uh, w was, you know, doing some kind of still life and the instructor and she was, but she wasn't drawing. If it was a cup in front of her, she wouldn't draw the cup as a stationary cup. Um, she would have draw the cup as if it was moving. Mm -hmm. um, and one of her instructors said to her, have you thought about film? Something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. She tells the story way better than <laughs> I do. Um, but this uh, ability to, I, I think something that really has struck, strikes me about Barbara's um, art is her, her ability, how she sees things. Um, she sees things uh, in a way that's very textured, um, very queer, uh, not necessarily linear or uh, normative. And I think her work has always attributed, been closely tied to that. So some of her early films, um, I think something that's really striking about a number of her early films is that she always places herself and her community front and center, which I think as a uh, lesbian is also very unique, um, that it's she was never hiding who she was um, or the spaces that she was around, which is, I think, pretty counter to traditional Hollywood cinema mm -hmm. in their portrayal of women. And even in, in terms of the avant-garde film movement that was coming up in the wake of World War II, where um, the reason that American avant-garde cinema took off after World War II was that it, we had developed a lightweight, flexible camera equipment mm -hmm. during that war for war purposes, but then um, people were able to use it in their their filmmaking practice, mm -hmm. but it was pretty much a guy's game. I mean, there was there was Maya Darren, but um, 
even though there were some women who were making films, the, the films that were mainly being distributed, that were mainly being discussed, were films by people like Stan Brackage. <laughs> and these were films that really explored what it meant to come of age as a man in the United States. Sure. And so she, while I wouldn't think of her as coming out of the Betty Friedan moment, certainly she was a feminist filmmaker from the very beginning just by virtue of being a woman who wanted to talk about uh, women's experiences and mm -hmm. women's lives and women's bodies mm -hmm. within this particular culture. So um, let's define queering things too while we're at it. Okay, so a queering history, uh, a queer filmmaker, not necessarily lesbian or gay, uh, not necessarily tied to particular sexual proclivities, but rather a mode uh, or does it have to be tied to a, uh, a particular sexual perspective? As a noun, I think it has to do with a sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. As a verb, my feeling is that it's when you take the dominant narrative and you maybe move slightly to the left or to the right and you show the facet of it that has been left hidden and it's in outing that facet that's been left hidden, mm. that you kind of queer the narrative. And so the verb kind of comes from the kind of um, shadow life that people who were in the closet had to live for so long, that there are many truths, not just truths about people's sexuality, but many truths that are in the closet, so to speak. And then when you out them, you can do a queering of whatever it is you're talking about, queering of literature, mm -hmm, queering mm -hmm. of any kind of history. Mm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our topic is Barbara Hammer, a pioneer in queer film who has made movies about women for over 40 years, often putting herself front and center as she explores life, art, sex, and social structures that narrow and confine the lives of women. Now we are talking uh, again about trying to work against a normative perspective, right? So we, we again, this is a time when we we come up, up against these terms, even in what I would call mainstream discourse, right? We come up against now uh, heteronormative perspectives, and these are critiques of the heteronormative to say mm -hmm. um, this this is one way, and it's dominant, and that's a problem. Really turns out to be a problem generally. It's what we've, we've been discovering about many things, right? White man dominant problem. Yeah. Right? So, because it's true. Like we look yeah. around, unless yeah. of course you're a, a dominant white man, everything looks fine, <laughs> right? Um, but this is an aspect, again, of not maybe not being able to be aware of a lot of these things on a, uh, again, a mainstream level. It would have been nice. I, I think I read somewhere, uh, Carmel, where you said you were introduced to these films in middle school. This is shocking to me because middle school, for heaven's sakes, for me, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing in middle school. Certainly not 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 looking at films like these um, that for 40 years, you know, people like me wouldn't have seen or even been able to. Well, maybe not even be able to see, mm -hmm. right? They're on VHS. They're, they're shared. They're hidden. You mm -hmm. know, uh, they are hidden themselves. So, um, you know, how do we how do we approach this when I don't know how you got to see these films or you know, and why why we don't have these opportunities? Yeah, I think a lot of it takes it takes work. Um, I think that it takes. Uh, I mean, in a way, Joan, I really like how you describe uh, queering. I think that to seek out um, a queered perspective or to navigate the world through a queer perspective 
um, takes takes work and takes active uh, investigation, um, which I think is part of what's so striking about Barbara's films that she, for example, one of the films that we're showing, History Lessons, which perhaps we'll talk more about um, mm-hmm. later in this segment, in this program, where she goes back to archival footage um, to historical archives uh, and reinterprets, manipulates um, the way that history has been told, mm-hmm. um, inserting um, inserting or highlighting uh, f- female and lesbian and queer perspectives. So I think that for me in terms of watching these films in middle school or for anybody who is trying to see Barbara's films now or her other work, she's not only a filmmaker, uh, it it takes work. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that they're not there, um, but it it takes participation from the audience uh, to to seek these things out. So we've got kind of what we need in terms of a Barbara Hammer as an artist, and um, and but I think Carmel, you you also said something about her putting herself front and center. Mm-hmm. Who is this person? You know, often naked on the screen, who's trying to do something with her body, with herself in front of a camera. Um, I get, these are complex things for me because I, I, I wonder, you know, what am I supposed to be doing with this film? And, and what is this person trying to want? Mm-hmm. Does she want me to see her? Does she want me to see her as a representative thing? Yeah, I think that um, for me, a large part of it's about confidence, um, confidence and visibility. So, uh, by placing herself in front of the screen, she's providing an example of um, a community that is not so hidden to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, but also I think it takes a lot of bravery to to put yourself um, to put yourself forward in this way. Uh, there's a long tradition in in women's film and in women's performance art of women doing self-portraits mm-hmm. and often doing self-portraits of themselves nude. Mm. And I think part of the focus of that is we have a certain idealized view of the female body, mm-hmm. which becomes very oppressive to women growing up because very few women's bodies actually naturally develop in this way that we're taught is supposed to be beautiful. and. So you have a tradition of women artists who are are saying, and it's a, like, look at me. I am a I'm an artist, and I'm a woman first of all, and look at my body. This is what a woman's body, what a real woman's body actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And and there is something radical in that, mm-hmm. in making us take a look at bodies as they are, and especially as we move on, and she, um, you know, she's been living with ovarian cancer, mm. and she has, and she's still displaying her body, and this is a way also of saying, you know, look at these bodies that our society doesn't want you to see. You know, we don't want you to see, we don't want you to see bodies that aren't Barbie bodies. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to see bodies that are ill bodies. We don't want you to see aging bodies. We don't want you to see bodies that show, that are interesting at all, that show any marks of life. Mm -hmm. But that's what I'm going to make my art out of. Mm. These are very difficult situations, and I like talking about it as art, but I also like it as 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 what social political necessary yeah it's very yeah that's that's a good yeah. way to think about it Carmel do you see her as an activist definitely mm-hmm. um, I think that Joan as you were saying just the very I mean the very nature of being a 
female filmmaker, um, a female experimental filmmaker, a female lesbian experimental filmmaker. All of these adjectives, I think, inherently come with some kind of um, political a- activist under lining, um, if not overlining. Um, Barbara herself, though, I think consistently has uh, been very active in questioning the status quo around her and interpreting that in her work, um, either by putting her body in front of her in front of the camera um, or you know through explicitly political films like Snow Job, which is about um, the AIDS crisis um, or resisting Paradise. Yeah. Um, which is uh, about war. Um, but uh, her her work and her ability to, um, I think, also work intergenerationally um, is, I think, a tribute to the way that she uh, um, resists the whatever is just presented in front of her, that that's only a starting off point to then uh, make change. Mm. I wanted to say two things, actually, along with what you were saying. There's a wonderful film called Menses where she, you just you look at menstrual blood. And, and part of that, again, is we have such taboos around these. It's just blood. Mm-hmm. And when you wipe it on a slide, it actually can be quite beautiful. Mm. Um, once you know that it's menstrual blood, then you have all kinds of other reactions to it, but it is just this beautiful red stuff Mm -hmm. that's on this slide. Here she is and made to order Spicy and clean and sugar and smiles It's time for a break. This is Fantasy Girl by Alex Dobkin. More on queering the world with guests Joan Hawkins and Carmel Curtis when Interchange returns. She's a great, a big, a giveaway girl. Exclusive, all-inclusive mama. She's a bargain basement mom replacement. A boop, boopy-doo. Let me entertain you. Well, isn't this what you want to come home to? A crinkle her. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is Queering the World, the Art of Barbara Hammer. And our guests are Carmel Curtis and Joan Hawkins, curators of the film series Barbara Hammer, Boundless, which begins tomorrow, Wednesday, January 16th. This segment begins by discussing the early films and how we might place Hammer in the history of feminist movements in the U.S. Does she know you? Oh, she's seen her right through the boo boo be doo boo boo be doo 
the whole series is called Barbara Hammer Boundless, um, and we really wanted to uh, bring Barbara Hammer's films and videos to Bloomington in a way that would be respectful and representative of Hammer's um, filmography, but also a starting off point for people in Bloomington who may or may not be so familiar with Barbara's work. So... Um, it's we broke it down into three segments: uh, the beginning, the middle, and the never ending. Um, to look at uh, over a fifty year span of Barbara's of Barbara's works, uh, the first night and and it, the programs are organized chronologically. So the first night, the beginning, looks at some of Barbara's really early films and videos. And I should also mention that we're really fortunate to have a number of um, either newly restored um, or new. Uh, actual celluloid prints coming from the Academy of Film Archives and Electronic Arts Intermix. They've been doing really incredible work to preserve and restore uh, a number of Barbara's films and videos. So this, the first night we're showing a range of Barbara's early films starting from 1968 to 1978. Uh, these films really are the beginning of Barbara's uh, lesbian aesthetic. Um, where she is putting, again, her body and her community front and center and really experimenting with the normative taboos, really breaking apart normative taboos of the female body and pleasure and desire. So a lot of these early films feature lesbian relationships, both romantic, sexual, and friendships, to, to create this dynamic depiction of... Barbara's community in her life. And we should perhaps say, I mean, one of the things that's wonderful about the gay community is that that's often a very fluid thing, a romantic, sexual, and And friend, that the same person can occupy all three, you know, aspects of your life at different times. And it's it's one of the things that straight people need to learn from gay people, (laughs) I think. Yeah, one of the films that we'll be showing that night, um, uh, Psychosynthesis, also uh, breaks down the concept of strict defined categories, which is something that is present in a number of Barbara's films. But in this film in particular, uh, she describes herself in these specific, specifically specifically defined categories. And then throughout the course of the film, you kind of see how there is no such thing as one singular category, Mm -hmm. that everything is fluid and um, there's a lot of crossover between uh, these terms that we use to define ourselves and our identities. Psychosynthesis is a film of gestalt fantasy work, uniting my subpersonalities of athlete, baby, witch, and artist. This is second wave feminism space uh, in terms of time frame. I don't want to necessarily put Barbara in, in these places. Again, it's one of the strange things for me. I've done a fair amount of reading in, in, this, uh, in this area. Never once did I come across the name Barbara Hammer. Now, maybe I'm not looking in the right places, but uh, so traditional texts of the second wave don't include film, don't, uh, don't cross over into these yeah. multiple disciplines. I think in terms of the periodization of the feminist movement, it's second wave moving into this strange interstitial space. Yeah, the reactionary space that we're going to come into so- shortly as well with the Reagan yeah. era. You know, when I think about second wave feminism, I think that there's this sort of middle space that starts maybe around 74, 75, before third wave actually begins, but mm-hmm. which isn't 
exactly second wave either. It's a, a place where women are um, they're rebelling against what they see as some of the strictures that were put on them by second wave feminism. Right, right. It's also somewhat heteronormative space, yeah. that second wave uh, yeah. feminism. Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. there was, you know, certainly in, by the early 70s, there was beginning to be a number of women's voices coming out saying, first of all, you know, if I am a person of color, there are times when mm. I have much more in common with men of color than I have with white feminists. Right, right, right. right. That's number one. Mm. And then the other, the other feeling of it, of second wave having been too dominated by heteronormative mm. sexuality. Yeah, that's, uh, it seems to be that's what's happening in these films in particular is to challenge, again, the heteronormative in particular to bring the, the female body onto the screen as well to explore some of those yeah. those things also. And to explore what happens. Like Laura Mulvey wrote, a, a f- sort of discredited with inaugurating feminist film theory, mm. with a, an essay that tied um, typical narrative pleasure in Hollywood cinema to a repressive patriarchal political culture. Mm-hmm. And what she ends up with at the end of that essay is a, a call saying that really where we are at now with uh, the way the stories are constructed is the only feminist film you could really have would be a radically experimental film, mm. a radically experimental mode of filmmaking. And, um, and so enter you know, Barbara's sort of straddling that. So she's, Mulvey's essay comes out in 75. Barbara's beginning to make films of the late 60s, and this first program straddles over Mulvey's essay going into 78. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our topic is Barbara Hammer, a pioneer in queer film who has made movies about women for over 40 years, often putting herself front and center as she explores life, art, sex, and social structures that narrow and confine the lives of women. Joan, you already talked about uh, menses, and uh, Carmel, you just talked about psychosynthesis. Um, do you want to talk about any of the others that are on there, the di- uh, tactics or uh, multiple orgasms? Surely that's a, uh, a, a crowd pleaser. Indeed. <laughs> multiple orgasms is a film that Barbara made um, in 1976. Um, it's a silent film, actually. So d- listen close. <laughs> <laughs> well, she talks about uh, her intention in making this as uh, really wanting to be able to pay attention attention to the sounds of the room. Mm. So again, if we go back to thinking about um, the way that she repositions audiences and really critically thinks about the uh, way that audience members can interact with uh, her cinema in a way that is perhaps non-traditional. So with multiple orgasms, she talks about uh, wanting to make this silence so that you could pay attention to the sounds of your own breath as you watch uh, Barbara pleasuring herself. It's an image of Barbara, um, a real close-up of Barbara pleasuring herself overlaid um, with uh, images of um, uh, with images of landscapes. Um, and so, as you pay attention to your own breathing and the breathing of the people next to you, uh, she was. She talks about wanting to um, really create that sense of um, open com- pleasure. Um, and a, a space of eroticism also that isn't so solo. Mm-hmm. And um, going back to that earlier question about second wave feminism, I mean, one of the things that second wave feminism 
did do. I mean, second wave feminism took as its point of departure women's bodies, mm-hmm. women, and that was one of the things they were critiqued for later, having this very essentialist view mm. of what gender and sexuality was. But they really started with women's bodies, and one of the big political things that was a keystone of second wave feminism was just for women to actually look at their bodies. Mm. That women, even women who had had children, had no idea what their, you know, what their um, labia looked like mm-hmm. or what their clitoris looked like or what anything looked like. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way then, of course, men had the upper hand there as well. Yes. <laughs> Still had the upper hand. <laughs> well, it's Indeed. interesting though. Also, Barbara talks about how this film would circulate, uh, multiple orgasms in particular. Um, and sometimes it would show in women only spaces uh, and sometimes it would show in mixed spaces. Uh, and she tells a story one time about how this showed it. And she would often, wherever it was showing, she would ask the people who were running the space. And sometimes we're talking about formal uh, screening spaces. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're talking about like m- more like community centers or people's mm-hmm. living rooms kind of spaces. Yeah, probably not the church basement, though. <laughs> I'm just guessing. You never know. We're you talking never about know. Berkeley. That's true. That's um, true. That's true. <laughs> She talks about one time where there was at least one man in the audience and the film starts and uh, this man screams and the women are like, if you don't like it, get out. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there is a a discomfort or a fear of seeing uh, female pleasure, of Mm -hmm. seeing female desire, especially when it is not at the hand of a man. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it's uh, maybe it was an unfortunate uh, formulation that I used, but it certainly did bring, you know, it, br- it brought to to light that particular issue, right? Uh, I just meant that men, you know, saw mm-hmm. more than women did, uh, at least in that space, you know, having having a particular view and being mm-hmm. primarily the doctors that you have to go see. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, and thinking about how, you know, the Kinsey did that exhibit not that long ago. It was the 50th anniversary of Kinsey's conversations with women. Mm. And there was a wonderful exhibit in the, I think it was the, um, in the School of Fine Arts, but the Grunewald Gallery mm-hmm. had an exhibit of, um, there were pictures of women who were having orgasms. Mm. And, and that that at the time that those photographs were taken, that that would have been considered a kind of a revolutionary mm-hmm. thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean they're gorgeous photographs, but well, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our topic is Barbara Hammer, a pioneer in queer film who has made movies about women for over forty years often putting herself front and center as she explores life, art, sex, and social structures that narrow and confine the lives of women. Barbara talks about wanting to, uh, that her communities in terms of the art world were a fraction that she had uh, lesbian or queer circles that she would show work in and experimental film circles that she would show her work in. So this middle section, um, I think, represents a time when Barbara was trying to really consciously think about both worlds, um, both these, this, this straddle that, um, Joan, you mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think that this middle section really represents a time when she's uh, trying to bridge some of those communities. 
So the question that I had here in this this particular, and it's from the the program notes you guys have, which are are, are interesting. Also, the idea uh, that she seems to be in a critical space of the medium itself at this point, and you know maybe more explicitly so. You know, coming to learn her craft and to be more about, let's say, initially understanding herself and the film and how to make film and how to make film about herself, about the communities and what it means to do that kind of thing. Then shifting into critiquing the medium itself and how those, how to, how to even be a body in a film in -hmm. some ways, which is, I think, an interesting contradiction about film always. How are we bodies in films? It, it, like, we struggle against it in the first place, right? As, as a visual medium is a, tyrannous one in the first place so mm-hmm. how do we become bodies or, or or find bodies or feel together within a filmic space this is the program that has that film I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. to Sanctus which is about these x-ray films mm-hmm. that were originally made and what she does with the physical body of the film is really interesting because not only are images being doubled in some cases, she she just she manipulates the film a lot. I think there's some tinting of the frames, there's um, some destruction of the film stock that goes on, um, so that she's so that we're being asked to look at this kind of very strange representation of bodies on screen. Uh, through this lens of the film body itself, which has been manipulated, mm. and and it's I mean it makes it more beautiful, but it also calls attention to the fact that we're talking about two different kinds of bodies. I'm just going to read a quote from sure. Barbara. Um, one of the films that we show in this that we'll be showing in this series, the middle is called Sync Touch, um, which is from 1981. Barbara writes about this: um, a lesbian slash feminist aesthetic proposing the connection between touch and sight to be the basis for a new cinema. The film explores the tactile child nature within the adult woman filmmaker, the connection between sexuality and filmmaking, and the scientific analysis for the sense of touch. So when we talk about, or when you ask about uh, the tactile nature of of cinema or of Barbara's work in particular, I think that's a really apt question to be discussing Barbara's work because she this the connection between touch and sight I think is very present for her um, and very present for her aesthetic. That this and. I think it goes back to a sense of community that um, she, you're not al- you're not alone. Even though this process of filmmaking that is often solo, um, that we're often a singular filmmaker working by themselves. In the case of Barbara, that is often the case. Uh, but it's it's about being able to touch mm-hmm. either yourself or the person sitting next to you mm-hmm. and bring that sense of uh, community of physicality uh, to the very medium of film that's then interpreted in the way that the audience uh, can see and touch the people sitting next to them or feel the presence of, of a community. time for another break. This is Hearts and Struggles, another by Alex Dobkin. Stay with us for more on the films of pioneering lesbian filmmaker and artist Barbara Hammer when Interchange returns. She sang and she played, she did lots of stuff that was currently done. She got married in September and a baby. 
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. We're discussing the prolific and important filmmaking career of Barbara Hammer, someone you've likely never heard of, and it's time to rectify that. Our final segment turns to Hammer's more recent films and to the artistic expression of a woman making art while living with ovarian cancer. There's been an assumption for a long time, I mean, not just within the art community, but within the scientific community, that women do not derive pleasure from visuality, that, um, you know, people who make pornography, that targets the female audience, for example, says that it's, it's the story that compels women, it's not visuals. Remember when the Red Shoe Diaries, which was the sort of soft core uh, series was on Showtime or something. I actually went to a talk at Society for Cinema and Media Studies where the producer of that show said they didn't show full frontal male nudity because women don't like to see that. And the women in the audience broke out laughing. And he looked absolutely baffled, like why women were laughing. And and so I think, again, I mean, not only the, the calling attention to our own bodies so that we can look at our bodies, see our bodies, see what women's bodies look like, but also to reinscribe the idea that for women too, sight is a mode of pleasure, it's a mode of mastery, it's a mode, it's all those things that we have no trouble saying attaching to male filmmakers, but when we talk about women filmmakers, we want to put them in some other, some other box, it seems to me, as though vision doesn't mean to us what it means mm -hmm. to men. So when, when I think about sight, like, I am sort of anti-sight, generally. I like my eyes, and I like yeah. to see, but it's one of the things that I'm kind of against, only because of where we are in our, our history, I suppose, mm -hmm. how we've come to not only value, overvalue it, mm -hmm. but all our technologies are sight-based, mm -hmm. right? They, we come to see outer space, not in reality, mm -hmm. which I, is a loose term, I understand, but through a computer. Mm -hmm. We can't see it otherwise. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. we can look at the stars, but we see pinpoints, mm -hmm. right? And, but we need the technology to see farther and to see closer. And mm -hmm. it's a very, I, I think technology is not ever neutral. And I just I see it as, no. a, as a male no. way to see things. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think it's fascinating to, to, to think of somebody trying to to work in a different way with that technology mm -hmm. that I find very masculine mm -hmm. as a technology mm -hmm. and to try to undo it, to try to put the audience into it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's, that seems pretty fascinating to me. Well, I, I mean, this is very personal, but I know that I've done nude modeling and I know that one of the big differences for me between um, modeling for a male photographer and modeling for a female photographer is that the time that I modeled for a female photographer, she took her clothes off. Hmm. Um, was the guy patently did not. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the ways in which that technology became... It, it truly became like this mediating device mm -hmm. between us rather than just a prosthetic device for her eye. Now, I don't know if Barbara worked that way or not. 
One more thing about this uh, middle program is that Barbara will be joining us for a, a virtual Q&A. So she, unfortunately, she lives in New York and she's not able to come physically to Bloomington. Mm-hmm. But um, there's little few things that stop Barbara. So she'll be joining us uh, virtually to participate in a Q&A, which will be a really, I think, unique opportunity for uh, Bloomington audiences to get a, a sense of this really prolific um, legendary filmmaker um, to see the way that she talks about her films, the ones that will be showing in this series in particular, but also just her filmography. It'll be a really great opportunity to see her honesty um, and to be able to ask questions of about her filmography and her practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in some ways I think a nice extension of her work because she's living with ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, once again, so she's not physically well enough to travel to Bloomington, but she is certainly giving us the opportunity to, to, this is what it's, this is what it's like to live with ovarian cancer. And this is what it's like to talk to somebody who's Mm -hmm. living with ovarian Mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to not um, hide behind that or uh, to still be present. Um, She does these performative lectures recently where, where it's really an opportunity also to to learn um, and witness uh, someone who is dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And we've talked about this that you know in the in the historical past where people just all lived in, I mean, people lived in the same house. People were born, had their marriages, and died in the same bed. Essentially, mm-hmm. that uh, people saw a lot more of the right. life process. We, we now we've just fragmented everything off, so we don't see right. so much. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our topic is Barbara Hammer, a pioneer in queer film who has made movies about women for over 40 years, often putting herself front and center as she explores life, art, sex, and social structures that narrow and confine the lives of women. Barbara as Hammer, we, the cranky years. As we all get, as we get older. <laughs> yes, okay. All I've right. been saying this for the past 40 years, yeah. you people. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's one of the fascinating things about about all, I guess, about learning anything, is that you run into the same things in decade after decade. Yeah. Different person might say it, same person might say it 14 times throughout yeah. the year, and you think, I just learned that myself. It's fascinating, but somebody else has said it, somebody else... Did yeah. it, um, and but they didn't exist for you. No, I know. Well, also, I, I mean, I, I think I'm feeling particularly cranky because we're gearing up to do another women's march, and I'm just yeah. feeling, you know, I've been <laughs> marching since I was 17 years old for the same yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's so irritating. Well, I but, think that there's a um, there's an active encouragement to forget. Yeah, um, yeah. we're not encouraged to yeah. to look at history um, or to remember. Yeah. Um, so with a piece like History Lessons where Barbara goes into the space of the archive um, to, to reclaim and retell uh, the narratives that we were taught in school, either in an often humorous or mocking way. History Lessons um, use, pulls content from a range of sources the kinds of materials, the kinds of archival materials that are pulled and included in this um, are 
things that you may be familiar with um, and things that you probably have never seen before. Uh, some of it is footage of, um, it, it's a lot of interior female spaces. Um, it's, there's a, with a audio, the audio in history lessons is really critical as mm. well. It's not only the visual for this, um, as is the case in a number of her films, but in this one in particular, uh, the, the way that she retells history is often similar to like a traditional educational film where mm. you'd have a male authoritarian mm. voice. The sure. voice that you hear in history lessons that you hear is a female who's lyrical, who's um, jovial, um, is, is often singing a song. Um, mm. So it's a way to tell history and to listen to history, to receive this history that is within this structure that perhaps feels familiar of these male, often male patriarchal educational films, mm -hmm. um, but really twists that on its head completely mm -hmm. uh, to dive a little bit deeper and then in turn pay attention to the voices that we can think of that we aren't hearing when we in this familiar category. It also unearths some of the buried stuff that's there in those old educational films, mm -hmm. so these social hygiene films. I mean, I remember watching this film. I, can't, I don't remember what the title of it was, but years ago, this was a film that would have been made in the 1950s. And, you know, the idea we have about the history of the 50s is that everybody, that the dominant culture simply assumed that um, there was a, a normal gender identity and sexuality and that these things happen naturally mm -hmm. and everybody knew what they were and you didn't have to worry about them and the films themselves actually tell a slightly different story so there was this one film that I watched that I was fascinating it was uh, addressed to mothers and it was how at what point do you begin to worry about your daughter's close friendship with her best girlfriend? Mm. And and there were like a there was like a specific age that was given. <laughs> it was like it's okay for Susie and Rhonda mm -hmm. to be over at each other's house all the time when they're 11, 12, 13. If at 14 Susie isn't beginning to look at Mike and still wants right. to hang out with Rhonda, then these are the things you should do. Mm. And the word lesbian is never used in this movie Maybe. but there's but just the idea that there is there was felt to be a need mm -hmm. to address some concern that women had about their daughters close relationships with girlfriends mm -hmm. that in itself is a buried history like who knew yeah. you know certainly that was never something that was being talked about on leave it to beaver right. you know <laughs> what about Eddie Haskell <laughs> Wally <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our topic is Barbara Hammer, a pioneer in queer film who has made movies about women for over 40 years, often putting herself front and center as she explores life, art, sex, and social structures that narrow and confine the lives of women. We talked earlier about um, the accessibility of films like Barbara's, but it's also the accessibility of um, history like this, yeah. uh, that it, it does take labor, yeah. um, and it takes uh, time and patience and also knowing where to look sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that takes community building and talking, you know, having networks where you can... Um, uh, know what kind of questions to ask and who to ask these questions to. Um, Do you want to say something about 
evidentiary bodies? And I also have a question to ask you at the end. Um, evidentiary bodies <laughs> is the uh, other piece that we'll be showing in this last segment, Barbara Hammer, The NeverEnding. Uh, it's a ex- beautiful experimental short that she made last year in 2018 mm-hmm. um, that sim- I started, we started this by saying that Barbara Hammer is difficult to describe succinctly and this film is all of that. What you're looking at is this three-channel piece, which means uh, three different projection screens. So this will show at the cinema where there's one projection, but originally this was intended to be shown on three separate uh, physical screens. Um, So when you come and see this film at the cinema, you'll see um, essentially like three squares next to each other to represent these three screens. Part of what you're seeing visually is this celluloid film that is um, uh, in various states of decay. Uh, And the film scrolls horizontally across the screen and then overlaid on top of this image of this decaying film is current Barbara, um, often naked, crawling over uh, the space of the celluloid. So... This film she made while she's been, as Joan mentioned, living with ovarian cancer mm-hmm. and in various stages of, of treatment um, where her body is dealing with the impacts of mm-hmm. um, living with cancer and going through treatment for this kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not only made in the midst of Barbara living and dying with cancer, but also in the midst of T-word administration, where anxiety and uh, political hopelessness and fear can feel overwhelming. Um, That coupled with a bodily illness, I think, has really, is really present in this piece um, as a, looking to art as a form of resistance, Mm. um, creation, uh, as a form of um, uh, living, mm-hmm. um, despite mm-hmm. what can seem so hopeless. Mm-hmm. But as she crawls through this film, to me what I think is really interesting to think about, especially paired with history lessons, is um, what if this body, this female, um, this female body, what if this is the imprint on celluloid? What if this Mm. is what's underneath? um, What if this is what's underlying all cinema history? What Mm. if we Mm. re-look at these films that we've seen, these newsreel footage um, or or, or whatever kind of mainstream Hollywood cinema or any kind of, or or any kind of media? Mm. Um, What if we re-look at this, um, strip everything away? uh, And what if we, think about this in terms of this feminist underlying layer, could we reinterpret what we think that we know in a different way? In the last two years of the war, when the Nazi occupation spread southward to include all of Provence, the intensity of refugee flow increased even more. There had always been a historical and political reality to this landscape. 
During the war, what did ordinary people in Kasi do? Surely it is very difficult to work when one is anxious. What did artists like Bonar and Matisse do? Did they continue to create and paint, shutting out the world around them? How can art exist during a period of war? That's our show. We'll close with Slater Kinney's No Cities to Love. Thanks to Carmel Curtis and Joan Hawkins for being our guides to the films of Barbara Hammer. Barbara Hammer, Boundless, begins tomorrow and runs for three nights. The screening takes place in the IU Library's Moving Image Archive screening room in the Herman B. Wells Library. And a reminder that Thursday features a virtual Q&A with Barbara Hammer about her work. Next time on Interchange, we'll queer the history of the U.S. by talking about the way labor strikes have shaped the country. Eric Loomis is our guest. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.